the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing, Clark Hilton engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to talk with Robert J. Hutchinson. He's been a guest here before. His latest book, The Death of Hitler, What Really Happened? There are a lot of uh, speculation, conspiracy theories, if you will. We're going to look at what he has discovered. And you might be interesting to, interested rather to learn that some of what we now know wasn't determined until quite recently. So anyway, we'll talk with Robert Hutchinson in the 5 o'clock hour. Looking forward to that look back in history. Taking a look forward to some of the uh, news of the last several days, hours after testing positive for the coronavirus on Thursday, forcing him to miss a visit to the state from the uh, President Trump, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, tested again, this time with a negative result, according to his office. First tested positive, then negative. Instead of meeting with the president in Cleveland, he returned to the state capital of Columbus to undergo another test, a so-called PCR test that his office said was extremely sensitive as well as specific for the virus. The governor's wife and staff members also reportedly uh, tested negative. Well, the PCR tests for the governor, first lady and staff were run twice a statement from his office that came back negative the first time, came back negative when they were uh, run on a second diagnostic platform, which really highlights how these tests are not necessarily reliable, even when you're talking about some of the best tests available. Dan Crenshaw, U.S. Representative Crenshaw, blasted teen Vogue columnist Candace Mallett on Thursday over a July essay in which she called for the eventual end of private property rights. Now, you think, uh, you know, Teen Vogue, they're talking about hair and makeup. Teen Vogue, he says, publishes op-ed that says we should abolish private property rights along with those pesky police. Well, Mallett, who was focused on the nation's racial injustice protests in recent columns, centered her argument around those struggling financially during the coronavirus pandemic, specifically those having trouble paying rent or dealing with eviction notices. Just wondering if anyone sees any issues with our next generation reading Marxist propaganda in a popular teen magazine, Crenshaw asked. Well, the president signed an executive order banning TikTok in 45 days, and mortgage rates are falling to record lows for eighth time in 2020. The Florida governor says unemployment system there was designed to be a total failure. Let's hope he's not right about that, but he is highlighting some challenges they're facing. And New York's attorney general has filed suit to dissolve the National Rifle Association, not to hold its leaders accountable for mishandling of resources and funds, but to dissolve the organization. Well, after looking at some of the NRA's issues, the editorial board of the National Review notes the effort to dissolve the NRA is nonetheless a plainly partisan political attack. The point here is not to fight nonprofit fraud, but a democratic effort to embarrass and hobble a political opponent, to burden it with expensive and cumbrous uh, litigation, and to weaponize the power of the attorney general's office for partisan ends. 
The Wall Street Journal similarly writes, the death penalty remedy is one hint that there might be some politics going on here. Another is that the lawsuit arrives after an 18-month investigation, a mere three months before an election, when Second Amendment rights will be an important issue. How better to neuter a major, major opposition political force than to tell its donors they've been fleeced? The president has suggested they move the NRA to gun-friendly Texas. Well, that's certainly not going to solve all of their problems at this point. Well, the makers of big-budget films, including Iron Man 3, World War Z, and Top Gun Maverick, are pandering to the country's authoritarian government by cutting characters and dialogue that aren't pro-China, according to PEN America, the nonprofit that promotes free speech. Authors of the report say Tinseltown honchos are censoring themselves to ensure better movie release dates and advertising deals from the country. Imagine that, Hollywood self-censoring to avoid offending the Chinese government. Teachers in New York are pressing parents to take their side in this uh, in-school learning as opposed to online learning, requesting they tell the schools they don't want their kids in the classrooms. Another story in the New York Post says teachers brought along visual aids, including handmade coffins and a guillotine while protesting Mayor Bill de Blasio's school reopening plan in lower Manhattan on Monday afternoon. Rich Lowry points out that uh, no other group has shown as much contempt for its own work during the coronavirus crisis as teachers. Their unions are actively fighting to keep kids out of the classrooms and to limit remote instruction, lest it require too much time and attention from people who are supposed to be wholly devoted to educating children. California is struggling to get accurate COVID-19 numbers and information. In fact, we're going to talk more about that in the state of Oregon here later in the program. Well, the ongoing technical problems with the electronic system for gathering and analyzing COVID-19 infection rates affect the state's ability to track the spread of the virus and could be resulting in significant undercounts of infections across the state. Now, of course, it could also be responsible for overcounting. Lonnie Chen points out that it's hard to fight a pandemic when you don't have the data. Well, in Beirut, the devastation has left people in a desperate situation. Earlier today, the prime minister and members of the cabinet resigned over all of this. Well, a pastor um, in Beirut says the horrific explosion wasn't an isolated incident in an otherwise stable country. Lebanon is in the middle of an economic crisis. The local currency has lost 80% of its value. For months, banks have restricted people's access to their money. The country is also in the middle of a revolution against a corrupt government. There's a famine in the countryside, major wildfires, and, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, this explosion has taken out the primary port of the country that's desperately dependent on imports for survival. There are no words to express the sense of hopelessness, despair, and anger that people are feeling right now. So many have lost their lives. Thousands are injured. Thousands more are suddenly homeless. And this is a quote from a pastor in Beirut, Marwan Abol Zalaf. Uh, the Gospel Coalition has more on that story. Pray for the people of Lebanon. There have been anti-government protests there that have broken out in the city in the midst of all of this as well. Well, the city of Los Angeles is threatening Pastor John MacArthur with fines and arrest for holding services, which he did again this weekend. The state has absolutely no power to oppose the restrictions it is demanding. Jenna Ellis, one of the attorneys representing the church, says this is not about health and safety. It's about targeting churches. Meanwhile, Anthony Scaramucci, who served in the Trump administration as the White House Director of Communications before losing his job 11 days later, clashed on Sunday night after Scaramucci criticized the president for essentially failing at every turn in the White House, citing a need to re-engineer the entire Republican Party, saying Trump is a traitor to the United States. 
Well, the tense exchange caught the attention of the president late Sunday, who tweeted Scaramucci was a loser who made a fool of himself. And the back and forth continued. Scaramucci recently teamed up with disenchanted officials from the Bush and Trump administrations to launch the Right Side PAC, a super PAC to turn out disaffected Republican voters for the former vice president and presumptive Democratic nominee. The interview took a turn when Hilton pressed Scaramucci over his support for Biden's policy platforms relating specifically to the economy and Biden's plans to uproot the Trump administration's deregulation agenda. In other related developments, Steve Hilton says anti-Trump Republicans are pushing a Biden win to protect their social standing. U.S. Attorney General William Barr, appearing on Sunday's Life, Liberty and Levin, told host Mark Levin the country is contending with a new form of urban guerrilla warfare driven by the left's lust rather, for power. Discussing the ongoing Black Lives Matter riots rippling through several U.S. cities, and I would say it's certainly beyond Black Lives Matter. It's exploiting uh, much of um, one part of the expression of that movement. Uh, he cited... Um, he told Levin the organization, which has been characterized by the media as a fed up activist group, is comprised of Bolsheviks with a focus on some form of socialism or communism. Expounding even further, Barr said they are a revolutionary group and their tactics are fascistic. Barr went on to compare the nationwide riots organized by Antifa to a new form of urban guerrilla warfare. In other related news, Senator uh, Cruz slammed the Democrats after the contentious hearing on Antifa last week, saying they want to encourage these radical leftists. And Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler finally condemned rioters for attempting to commit murder. And Portland police, Portland's police chief says riots are not helping the cause of racial justice. Enough is enough. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Just a reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Robert J. Hutchinson. His latest book, The Death of Hitler, What Really Happened, the book is published by Regnery History and is a really interesting read. So if you're looking for some, I don't know, lighthearted reading for summer, this is a, a great pick. We're winding our way through some uh, news stories of the last several days. Um, back the Blue supporters, Black Lives Matter counter demonstrators involved were involved in violent clashes in an all-out melee in California, or rather Colorado. Counter-protesters from Black Lives Matter got involved in a violent confrontation with pro-police supporters at a Back the Blue rally in Fort Collins, Colorado on Saturday, ending with the arrest of three people. The pro-police attendees said two different groups of counter-protesters, consisting of Black Lives Matter supporters and what appeared to be members of Antifa, joined the event. They also claimed a, a, a faction from one of those two groups attacked a veteran who was in a wheelchair, according to the Collegian. Clips featured on a rally goer's Instagram account showed the... Um, all-out melee of various protesters beating one another. These people screamed and cursed while they looked on. Another melee, uh, another attendee rather, can be heard on the video saying, keep punching each other in the face, but don't shoot anybody. I'm sure that was, that was comforting at the time. Meanwhile, Portland saw thousands of worshipers um, before rioters set fire at a Portland police union building on uh, over the weekend. We'll tell you more about that later in the uh, the hour as well. A former San Francisco mayor is urging Kamala Harris to politely decline the vice presidential slot if offered to aim for the attorney general slot instead. And the Astros and the A's are facing hefty fines after Oakland stars um, 
I'm sure James can correct me on this, Loriano charged with uh, charged the dugout, I should say. Coronavirus cases jumped 40% in the U.S. with kids last month. And indoor services at a California church sparked confrontation between protesters and congregants and a stay uh, uh, order as well. Well, Amazon is reportedly looking to transform shuttered JCPenney's and Sears stores into fulfillment centers. And Hyundai's stock has jumped as much as 10% to the highest price since May of 2018 after their EV announcement. And the president's latest stimulus move flips the table on Pelosi and the Democrats. Well, an outspoken pro-democracy figure, um, a Hong Kong uh, tycoon, a media tycoon, was arrested at, under security, the new security law. From the story, the Hong Kong police arrested the media tycoon, Jimmy Lay and raided the publisher's headquarters on Monday and the highest profile use yet of the new national security law Beijing imposed on the city after protests last year. Katie Pavlich points out, um, will tech giants in the U.S. finally speak out against the Chinese Communist Party? The answer quite likely is no. Well, Portland rioters attacked an elderly woman over the weekend, covering her in paint. She was trying to persuade them to stop the vandalism didn't work. Andy No reports, we're going to burn your building down. We know where you live. That's what they were saying. As Antifa have taken to Portland residential areas to riot, they've also assaulted and intimidated residents there. Uh, last night, they threatened those who looked out the window. Rod Dreyer uh, on Twitter points out that if the Crips or Bloods or MS-13 were doing this uh, night after night, does anybody think that the authorities would tolerate it? Why does Portland put up with Antifa? Well, they set the police union building on fire on Saturday night. And in Seattle, a pro-police rally was met by Antifa members trying to start fights and burn flags. The Colorado Police Department says they're losing officers as politicians make their jobs worse. What's the upshot of all this? Um, far fewer interactions with the public and a significant increase in police officers retiring early or simply quitting and seeking new types of employment. And, of course, the crime rate also climbing. Unemployment dropped to 10.2 percent, better than expected. And in San Francisco, they're providing the homeless with cigarettes, marijuana and alcohol. Apparently, they're trying to thin the population. It turns up at the very end of the story on how homeless, uh, homelessness turned a hotel room into a meth lab. And a teacher says online teaching is a problem because parents see what they're up to. And in his case, he's teaching them things parents would quite rightfully object to. The American Conservative reports. Matt Walsh points out that public school teachers are afraid uh, that you might be able to hear them brainwashing your kids. End quote. Well, Amazon is removing another book or has removed another book on homosexuality for political incorrectness. The book is Growth into Manhood, Resuming the Journey by Alan Mettinger. It's um, uh, from the year 2000. John Stone Street points out that just he just received from Amazon. We are writing to let you know that the following detail pages have been removed from our catalog. Title, Growth into Manhood, Resuming the Journey. During a review, we found the subject matter of your book. It violates our content guidelines for books. It is a brave new world. Although the left decried book burning, now it's just book banning. Denny Burke says this is chilling, and I would say the same. A new study finds the elite media lives in an unrealistic bubble. Most of the time, what happens on Twitter doesn't reflect the real world. But in the case of political journalism and political elites, generally speaking, what happens on Twitter is reality. It's an online reflection of their offline lives and work, she says, and plays a significant role in agenda setting. Imagine that, Twitter. 
and a USC student uh, government leader has resigned as anti-Semitism puts her in danger. Rose Rich's resignation letter reads in part, I am disappointed that the university has not recognized the need to publicly protect Jewish students from the type of anti-Semitic harassment I endured. At this point, resignation is the only uh, sustainable choice I can make to protect my physical safety on campus and my mental health. The president uh, signed an executive action after Congress stalled on the COVID-19 relief. The back and forth will continue and perhaps they'll come back to the table. Otherwise, it stands in place. And the House Ethics Committee has ordered Representative Rashida Tlaib to return a campaign uh, fund she paid herself. And following Joe Biden's mea culpa, CNN and MSNBC defend the former vice president after virtually ignoring his latest series of gaffes. The U.S. Postal Service um, leader has set up substantial reorganization amid scrutiny over mail ballots. The New York Times is reporting. And of course, New York had, among other places, had significant problems most recently. And Chicago is rocked by widespread looting after a police-involved shooting. By the way, police were returning gunfire from the the individual involved in that uh, police-involved shooting. And another riot was declared after Portland protesters set the police union building on fire. New York City bloodshed spirals as uh, shootings this year nearly double those during the same period in 2019. Americans should be concerned. That's what the National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien said, issuing a warning about China. And the uh, Trump administration has penalized 11 Hong Kong or rather Chinese communist officials for their crackdown on protesters. Germany is pushing to end its 2% GDP commitment to NATO. And agents have discovered the most sophisticated tunnel in U.S. history connecting Mexico and Arizona. In the latest COVID-19 news, the U.S. hit 5 million COVID cases as the debate lingers over the path forward. Among them, the number of children jumped 40 percent in late July, bringing the tally to 8.8 percent of all cases. A new study finds Sweden's refusal to lock down saved the economy without sacrificing lives. You can read more about that at The Federalist if you're interested in those details. Well, the U.S. economy added 1.8 million jobs in July, adding to record gains in the wake of pandemic destruction. However, millions of small businesses are shuttered. The president's payroll tax executive order is likely worth $1,200 per worker, according to Larry Kudlow. And unemployment fraud is rising thanks to that $600 bonus. Unemployment claims have plummeted after Arizona retooled its process to deter fraud. Well, Lebanese, um, uh, Lebanon rather sees a possible external interference in last week's deadly port blast. Blame Hezbollah, they speculate. And Canadians are reportedly doing damage to American cars and want immigration restricted amid the coronavirus concerns. Jerry Falwell Jr. is taking indefinite leave of absence from Liberty University after uploading racy pictures to Instagram. And the NRA is fighting back. Uh, filing its own suit against New York's um, uh, G- attorney general, who they argue is unlawfully seeking to disband the organization. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back to continue taking a look at the news of the last several days. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Robert Hutchinson. He's the author of the series, What Really Happened? This latest, The Death of Hitler. There's a definitive answer. We'll talk about it when he joins us in the second hour of today's program. 
Well, there is chaos coast to coast as a school year like no other launches or doesn't launch. Keep your eyes and ears open on that. This day in history, 1993, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is sworn in as the second female justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. 1921, Franklin Delano Roosevelt is stricken with polio at his summer home on the Canadian island of Campobello. 1988, President Ronald Reagan signs a measure providing $20,000 payments to still-living Japanese Americans who were interned by their government during World War II. And 1995, on this day in history, Norma McCorvey, Jane Rowe, of the 1973 Supreme Court decision legalizing abortion announces she's joined the pro-life group Operation Rescue. Finally, on this day in history, 2008 at the Beijing Olympics, Michael Phelps begins his long march toward eight gold medals by winning the 400-meter individual medley in four minutes, three seconds, smashing his own world record. By the way, James Blend has uh, garnered five gold medals as producer of the Georgine Rice Show, at least in my mind. President Trump signed four executive actions on Saturday aimed at delivering relief to Americans struggling with the economic fallout of the coronavirus while accusing Democrats of stonewalling greater aid efforts. The president announced a $400 per week supplemental unemployment payment to out-of-work Americans short of the $600 weekly benefits that expired at the end of July. He unveiled an extension of student loan relief and protections from evictions from renter or rather for renters and homeowners. The president also issued a payroll tax holiday through the end of the year for Americans earning less than $100,000 while promising more relief if he wins a second term. The president signed the executive actions from his Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey, as club members cheered him on. He blamed Democrats for the coronavirus stalemate in Congress and said he'd take matters into his own hands. Well, the president signed the order um, extending coronavirus economic relief during a news conference there uh, for the new $400 per week benefit. States would uh, be on the hook for funding 25 percent. For the millions of jobless Americans, while the federal government would pick up 75 percent of the benefit, the president asked when the jobless um, uh, would see uh, money. Trump said uh, it wouldn't be rapidly distributed. Or rather, it would be. Let's get that straight. Well, the $400 boost is more than what many uh, congressional Republicans wanted. Some opposed any extension of the federal aid, while others backed a boost no greater than $200 per week. Meanwhile, Democrats have been fighting for the full $600 per week extension, uh, which is on top of state unemployment benefits. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senator Chuck Schumer, they dismissed the president's meager actions and slammed the president for signing them for uh, from his um, club. Today's meager announcement by the president shows the president still doesn't comprehend the seriousness or the urgency of health and economic crisis facing working families, they said. The president has long wanted a holiday on payroll taxes, which help fund Social Security and Medicare, but congressional Republicans uh, haven't fought for the provision because of how much the suspension on tax collection could drive up an already staggering debt. Well, a majority of voters, including half of Democrats, don't think that 77-year-old Democrat Joe Biden will serve all four years as president, putting added pressure on who he plans to choose as vice president and potential successor, according to a new survey. According to the latest Rasmussen Reports poll, 59% of likely voters believe Biden's vice president will take over his first term if he's elected in November. And that includes 49% of Democrats. Uh, The survey says um, backing up others that have found many in the party don't care who is elected as long as it's not President Trump. 
most voters think it's likely that uh, that the person that um, will be president within the four years if Biden is elected in November, again, referring to his vice presidential pick. Just over half of voters continue to say they're likely to vote against Trump this fall, and a sizable majority of those voters don't seem to care who runs against him, according to Rasmussen. Now, keep in mind, we had a survey a week and a half ago saying that 62, 63 percent of Americans are unwilling to say what they actually think for fear of the backlash. So it's hard to know whether or not these uh, polls and surveys are reliable. A Baltimore firefighter searched through the rubble on Monday after a gas explosion destroyed three row houses, killing a woman and seriously injuring several others. The blast that also shattered windows and other homes unfolded shortly after 10 a.m. in a residential neighborhood in the city. This was a very extensive explosion, according to the fire chief. This is a horrendous type of situation that we're dealing with at this point. One destroyed home belonged to an 88-year-old U.S. Army veteran, the Baltimore Sun reported. That veteran, Major Watkins Jr., said the explosion sounded like Korea. Shortly before the news briefing began, firefighters rescued a woman who had been trapped for two hours. She was transported to a hospital with three others who were rescued uh, earlier. She has been uh, uh, was seen giving a thumbs up as she was wheeled down the street on a stretcher. A short time later, a fifth person, a man, was rescued from the rubble. His condition wasn't revealed. Firefighters continued to search for possible other victims into the afternoon. The cause of the gas explosion is under investigation. And the jobs numbers for July came out on Friday, and the report shows that the COVID-19 damaged economy is rapidly rebounding. There were 1.8 million jobs added in July as the headline unemployment rate dropped uh, to 10.2 percent, down from April's high of 14.7 In short, the U.S. economy has now regained 42% of the jobs lost before the um, pandemic shutdown. We're not exactly in the V-shaped recovery, but things are looking up. The economic sector seeing the largest gains are leisure and hospitality, with 592,000 jobs added, of which restaurants and bars continued uh, to contribute 502,000. Another 258,000 jobs were added in retail, while healthcare added 126,000, and manufacturing added 26,000. Well, the mayor of Portland is finally coming around on condemning violent riots in the city. Uh, according to Acting Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Mark Morgan on Friday, he says the exact same thing that I've been saying with the respect to the federal building that this uh, that these thugs, these criminals, these anarchists were doing to the federal courthouse. Morgan said uh, they were assaulting the federal officers. They were trying to burn it to the ground with people inside. I've been saying that was attempted murder as well. I guess he finally got on board. Well, Portland Mayor Wheeler Thursday evening condemned the actions of rioters who attempted to set a a fire to the police precinct and block the exits while officers were inside. When you commit arson with an accelerant in an attempt to burn down a building that is occupied by people who have uh, intentionally trapped inside, you're not demonstrating you're attempting to commit murder, Wheeler said in a news conference with the Portland Police Chief Chuck Lovell. Don't think for a moment that you are, if you are participating in this activity, you're not being a prop for the re-election campaign of Donald Trump, he went on to say, because you absolutely are. You are creating the B-roll film that will be used in ads nationally to help Donald Trump during his campaign. If you don't want to be part of that, then don't show up. Now, this is fascinating to me that the mayor of the city of Portland 
is referring to the political fallout of this event rather than the crime itself that threatened the lives of the inhabitants of the building who were trapped inside while it was there was an attempt made outside to burn the building. I don't care if Harry S. Truman is the president to make that political uh, appeal as if that was somehow worse, and I suppose in his mind, and maybe some of the others, worse than the attempted murder of those uh, police officers inside, is just outrageous. Well, a riot was declared uh, that evening when agitators descended upon the Portland Police Bureau's East Precinct building, spray-painted over security cameras, broke a glass door, um, lit a fire using an accelerant and threw fireworks and other objects at officers. Police said that a truck also attempted to run over officers, and uh, it uh, continued. Uh, Officer Morgan said that Wheeler uh, was blaming the federal presence for the violence in the city. Now that has shifted to the local police. Now he's still blaming the president for these things, Morgan said. It's unbelievable. I think the, the majority of American people see past this. Well, we'll see. Meanwhile, while the uh, violence and back and forth continue in the city, hundreds gathered at Portland's waterfront to see um, a worship, well, let me read the headline and then clarify. This is what, um, I think this was KGW had to say. Hundreds gather at Portland waterfront without masks to see controversial worship leader. Now what the, um, the media misunderstands is they weren't there to see a worship leader. We'll talk more about what actually happened and why he's considered controversial uh, when, you know, you've got Antifa, I guess they're not controversial. Anyway, we'll talk about what happened on the waterfront this weekend. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next hour, we'll hear from Robert J. Hutchinson. The death of Hitler is the subject in his series, What Really Happened? He'll join us in the second hour of today's program. One of the headlines read, hundreds gather at Portland waterfront without masks to see controversial worship leader. Now, for those of you who were there, is that how you would have headlined the event? First of all, hundreds is an understatement in terms of numbers, without masks, some wore them, some didn't, to see controversial worship leader. Now, if you know anything about worship, you don't go to see the worship leader. The worship leader is the facilitator, but nonetheless, at least they covered the event. Well, again, uh, this is um, one version of the headline. Another was Portland sees thousands worship amid coronavirus restrictions hours before riots fire at police union. Well, thousands of Christians gathered outdoors in Portland on Saturday to sing worship songs with the state's coronavirus social distancing measures just hours before a riot was declared across town and a separate crowd lit fire to the city's police union headquarters. That's another uh, headline of how it was covered. Well, worshipers met in Waterfront Park on Saturday evening uh, for an event dubbed Riots to Revival. They refer to Sean Foyt, who was the worship leader, as a controversial Christian musician. He's hosted similar gatherings on California beaches, um, led the crowd uh, to worship songs. Uh, there were uh, people who came to faith in Christ. There were baptisms. And I think for many of us who just read the headlines, we might uh, you know, immediately roll our eyes. You know, Why didn't they wear a mask? What was going on? There was actually something very significant going on in Portland uh, this weekend. So don't dismiss it quite so quickly. Um, there was something significant happening in the spiritual realm here in the city of Portland. Now, the, the focus has been COVID-19 and the fact that this gathering took place and a lot of people 
were not distanced appropriately and did not wear their masks. Uh, but again, um, we have a lot of events going on, namely what's been going on across the city. This was designed to address from riots to revival, again, is the name of the uh, event, uh, where, where uh, coronavirus has not even been uh, a stated concern uh, and there's lots of destruction going on. Well, this was a building up. Uh, this was a cry for revival in the city of Portland, and thousands of people came to Portland's waterfront to worship God and to pray for change in the city of Portland. Now, you might have done it differently. You might not have gone to see, uh, be led in worship by Mr. Foyt, but this was um, one part of what was essentially a day-long series of events. There was an event in Peninsula Park. There were There was prayer and prayer walks and events taking place all throughout the day, people crying out to God to do something significant in the city of Portland. Uh, said one of the attendees, white, black, Hispanic, we came, we released our songs of hope over the city. People gave their life to Je- lives to Jesus, hundreds of people. We baptized people in the river, referring to the Willamette. There was so much joy that took over the streets of that city last night. Foyt estimated between four to 7,000 people attended the massive outdoor church service. And uh, again, KGW's headlines, hundreds gathered in Portland. It looked more like thousands to me. Anyway, um, four to 7,000 people attended the massive outdoor service that happened just blocks away from the federal courthouse and acted as a counter. They call it a counter protest to bring worship, prayer and acts of kindness to Portland. It wasn't a counter protest unless you were uh, characterize that as standing against the enemy who would like very much to destroy the city. And I'm not just talking about physical structures. Uh, Over only 600 people responded to a Facebook event to say that they would attend, but many, many others did. Video showed the large, close-knit crowd of people with their arms raised in praise and worship. The city has been more than two months. We've seen violence in the wake of the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May the 25th. And this um, one night was uh, taglined, Riots to Revival, um, which carried on into Seattle the following day. It's always interesting to me to see how um, major media characterizes these kinds of events. If you don't have any idea of what worship actually is, you think it is an entertainment event where people go to see uh, a musician perform. Well, that wasn't the focus or the purpose of this gathering. Uh, This was a corporate prayer for God to intervene in the affairs of the city of Portland. And I hope whether or not you were there at that event Uh, Whether or not you agree with the worship leader, and I'll explain who he is in just a moment, I hope that we're all praying for that. Um, Clearly, our city leaders are not willing to take the kinds of action that would put an end, at least to the violent expression of protest in our city. And so many are falling to their knees and asking God to intervene, not just to put an end to the violence, but that there would be a revival in the city of Portland. And that's what this weekend was all about. And again, the event um, on Saturday night was just the largest expression. It was the final leg of the journey that began early in the morning on Saturday and went throughout the day at various locations with people crying out to God, praying and worshiping him uh, on behalf of our city. Now, Sean Foyt has been characterized in much of the media as the controversial worship leader. He's a 36-year-old. He comes from Missoula, Montana. He describes himself as a missionary, an artist, speaker, author, activist, the founder of multiple worldwide movements. He's released some 22 music albums. He's co-authored five books, developed an online school. 
He ran for a U.S. House of Representatives in California's third congressional district this year. He lost in the primary there. And I suppose because they call him a political activist, he was a candidate. I'm not sure that's the same thing. But under these circumstances, the less flattering description is usually applied uh, to conservatives. Nonetheless, he has nearly 35,000 followers on Twitter. He's not someone I'm was particularly familiar with, but just to give you some idea, according to his website, he started three religious movements, Burn 24-7, Light a Candle, and Hold the Line. Uh, He's married. He has, I think, five, uh, four children, I think, uh, four children. Anyway, he led uh, in the event that took place um, on Saturday. And again, whether or not it's consistent with your faith tradition, it's outside of your denomination, you would have done things differently or you wouldn't have been involved at all. I hope we can all agree in unity together that we need God to intervene and we want to see people come to faith in Christ in our community and that we're praying fervently to that end. And one of the things that marks the uh, Uh, The favor of the body of Christ is that we can stand in unity on those principles. We know it's consistent with God's will, and I hope all of us will take seriously uh, the call to to prayer, um, the opportunity and the access we have to the throne of grace, and that we are praying fervently for revival in our community, and that while Portland has been the focus of so much national attention because of the violent eruptions that's been covered here, that there would be a shift, as um, many like to say, in the atmosphere. Atmosphere, a shift in what's happened, what happens here, and what's happening here, that would um, really uh, change the nation. Well, on Sunday, Portland police declared a riot outside the Portland Police Association. This is Sunday, the following day, after fireworks were thrown at uh, two officers who were injured by a mortar. Now, these are not just you know sparklers. We're talking about. Um, professional-grade fireworks that are very damaging. A total of 16 people were arrested and charged with um, disorderly conduct, interfering with a police officer or both. A group of about 200 people gathered at Kenton City Park on Sunday to rally for the abolition of police and prisons and to support the Black Lives Matter movement. The group marched uh, to the Portland Police um, Association building on in North Portland, the same location where rioters broke into the building on Saturday night and lit a fire. Well, on Sunday, when the crowd reached the offices, police uh, sounded the alarm from a sound truck that if the group engaged in criminal activity like vandalism or attempting to set the building on fire, police would make arrests and potentially use tear gas and other munitions. And uh, arrests were made, uh, violence erupted, and the rest we are quite familiar with. And as you know, there were uh, there was an effort by an uh, they describe her as an elderly woman. I'm not sure what her age group was, but. Uh, she was assaulted in front of the um, she was uh, harassed and intimidated and paint was poured on her as she was trying to persuade the uh, rioters uh, not to destroy the facility. And that's what's been going on in the city of Portland. If you don't see in that a call to prayer and ask God to intervene into the affairs of men, I don't know what um, what would constitute uh, that kind of a, a call for God to intervene. In any event, we've got news and traffic coming up in just the next few moments. When we come back, we're going to talk about what's happening with churches across the country. John MacArthur and his Sunday service opened the service saying, welcome to the peaceful protest, <laughs> referring to um, the Sunday morning service. We'll talk about the indoor service that has uh, that met with a confrontation from protesters and the California court that's issued temporary restraining order against the church for holding indoor services as well. That's and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Robert Hutchinson. He's the author of What Really Happened. This is the second in said series, The Death of Hitler. It's an interesting book and might make a great summer read if you're looking for something uh, interesting and if you enjoy history. That's coming up in our next segment. Well, Pastor John MacArthur, whose California church is holding in-person services in violation of the state of California's COVID-19 health orders, opened his most recent sermon by welcoming his congregation to the Grace Community Church Peaceful Protest. He went on to explain that based on the word of God, his church is pro-life, pro-family, pro-law and order, and pro-church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the pastor then invited a chaplain from the Los Angeles Police Department to deliver the service's opening prayer. The chaplain prayed that MacArthur and his congregation would have the wisdom and faith to weather all of the, the things going on in church and outside the church. Pastor MacArthur, he preached from 1 Corinthians 1, which reads, in part, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. We are here, he said, in obedience to our Lord. We are here because he has given us commands, not in a personal, um, esoteric way, not through some vision or dream, not because I hear voices from heaven. I don't, but because I have a Bible, he said. Grace Community Church is defined by its commitment to Holy Scripture. For true Christians, the Bible is our greatest treasure. Well, the mark of a true Christian is the love of Scripture. He went on to say, adding, God's true church has always been a place where people hunger for the truth from the Bible. That's why we are here. If this pulpit was not the place for the proclamation of the word of God, this place would begin to be empty, he added. That's why you're here. It's clear to me that you love the word of God. That's why you're here. Uh, We're not smarter than anyone else, he uh, stressed. We're not more spiritual. We're not better people. We're as wretched as any and all are sinners, but we've been chosen uh, and when we've um, and then we've been called and then we've we were saved sovereignly, supernaturally. We're the nobodies. We get it. He concluded. We're the nothings. We're non-existent. We're the low of the lows, but we have the wisdom of God because God in his grace and mercy called us. Well, he's made headlines in recent weeks after the church opted to meet in defiance of Governor Gavin Newsom's second round of lockdown orders affecting church gatherings. We are a church that has a reputation for the last 50 years of obeying the government, the pastor said in a recent interview. We are a friend of this society to every level of this society. We have been given awards and accolades and plaques from the city government, the police department, all in authority because they recognize what an honorable congregation this church has been. But never before has the government invaded the territory that belongs only to the Lord Jesus Christ and told us we can't meet, we can't worship, we can't sing, the pastor continued. There's no power given to the government to make those kinds of calls against us. We love our neighbors. We're not spreading anything but the gospel, MacArthur said, noting that out of 7,000 church members, no one has had any effect um, if they've um, had COVID. Uh, Officials from the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health reportedly threatened Pastor MacArthur with repercussions such as fines and even possible arrest if the church doesn't comply with state orders. Well, the church has since received special counsel from President Trump's personal attorney, Jenna Ellis, and religious freedom expert uh, Charles LeMandry. Meanwhile, protesters and congregants clashed on Sunday after Pastor Rob McCoy, the pastor of Ventura County's Godspeak Calvary Chapel, 
held morning services on Sunday in the face of the judge's order supporting state and local health mandates aimed at preventing the spread of COVID-19. Pastor McCoy's decision joins other pastors in the state of California to challenge coronavirus mandates that they say unfairly targets places of worship. His decisions to hold the service drew supporters and detractors. Uh, they're pretty. Uh, they're, there's plenty of room to have beautiful outdoor service, and he's chosen to break the rules. And I think that's uh, not right, says um, one uh, observer, Shanna Radshaw. Uh, I think God wants people to live and be healthy and not spread sickness when we don't need to, end quote. Well, others that attending uh, the church was their right to freedom of expression and worship, and nothing replaces the feeling of going to an in-person service, according to the station. Uh, we're seeing a loss of all rights, but the right of the church, this is the foundation of this country, and we're very serious about it. So, yeah, we will go to jail for it, said another. Well, live streaming of the services showed a maskless uh, pastor standing before what he called a room full of people with most uh, captured on video without masks on. And that, of course, is the cardinal sin these days. I'm seeing a room full of people who realize that liberty is not man's ideas. It's God's idea, Pastor McCoy said during the service. And you'll be ridiculed and you'll be maligned, but you're doing it for those who ridicule and malign you. Well, he told the local news the reason he hasn't held services outside is that a staff member has sun allergies and there's not a big enough uh, park nearby to accommodate all the members. The pastor uh, on Friday had vowed to continue holding services despite the county superior court judge issuing the temporary restraining order citing an immediate threat to public health and safety due to the 2019 novel coronavirus. On a scale of 1 to 10 of the most immediate irreparable harm possible, this is a 10 uh, the uh, Superior Court said during the hearing, it doesn't get uh, much more immediate or irreparable than uh, the threat to a lot of people uh, and that they're going to spread the contagious and deadly disease. So the back and forth in California has continued and there's actually been a restraining order issued uh, for that particular church. Meanwhile, um, Franklin Graham is announcing a prayer march uh, September 26th in a nation's capital. Evangelist uh, Graham has called on thousands of families, pastors, and churches to join him for Prayer March 2020 in Washington on the 26th of September. Our nation is in trouble, he says. We need God's help. I'm announcing today that on September 26th, I'm going to be in our nation's capital to pray, and I hope thousands of families, pastors, and churches will join me. Our nation is in trouble, and we need God's help. Make plans now to come to hashtag Prayer March 2020. Graham is the president of the Christian Charity Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. He wrote on Twitter, our only hope for this country is God, he said in a video. Jack Graham, the pastor of Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas, responded to the tweet saying, I will be there. I want to invite every pastor and church in the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, and all others who can join us. Uh, can you imagine thousands of believers praying together for our broken nation? Let's do it. From noon to two, believers will march from the Lincoln Memorial to the Capitol building, covering 1.8 miles while praying for the nation during extraordinary times, the website says. America is in trouble, it's in distress, but we do have hope, and that hope is in Almighty God. And we need to pray now more than ever, more than we have ever done in our lives. Our communities are hurting, our people are divided, and there's fear and uncertainty all around us, he said in the video message on the website referring to riots and violence across the country and the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Earlier this month, rioters carrying Black Lives Matter signs threw Bibles into a fire in front of the federal courthouse in Portland and burned the American flag. Riots in Portland and many other places, he went on to say, uh, many other cities across the country have been ongoing since the 25th of May. According to Johns Hopkins University, their coronavirus resource center, the U.S. has more than 5 million confirmed cases with nearly 163,000 deaths as of early Monday. Um, Jenison uh, Franklin, the senior pastor of Free Chapel Church in Gainesville, Georgia, also called on Americans to join him for 21 days of fasting and prayer beginning August the 1st. I believe the Lord spoke to me and said, Make the month of August a season of crying out and praying and fasting and turning back to God like never before. It's time to fast and pray and break the back of COVID. We must see a divine reversal, he says. We must see a turnaround, um, added the host of the weekly television program, Kingdom Connection. Well, in uh, May, uh, they were invited, uh, they rather invited thousands of churches and ministries worldwide to dedicate the entire month to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through the uh, outreach, 50 million Christians did, in fact, share the gospel, reaching 248 million people, according to estimates by the organizers. So it's not just what's happening in the city of Portland. Um, the call to prayer, the call to worship, people gathering and crying out to God and praying for revival and uh, and help, uh, because we see no other way to resolve the major issues. But this is happening all across the country. So be encouraged that people are praying, they're crying out to God, they're coming together and asking for wisdom and direction and for divine intervention. Again, be encouraged. Up next, we're going to talk with Robert Hutchinson. He's the author of What Really Happened? That's the Hitler. It's part of a series that he uh, began with uh, Abraham Lincoln. He'll join us to talk about this latest. Um, it's a great read, especially during the summer months when, well, you're looking for great things to read. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a great history mystery. And my next guest has started a series simply titled What Really Happened? And today we're going to take a look at one of those mysteries. Uh, we did the same back in April when he joins us to talk about what happened in the Lincoln assassi assassination. But today we're going to be talking about whether or not Adolf Hitler died in his bunker, or whether he didn't. Well, award-winning pop history author Robert Hutchinson, he takes a new look at the case, and he explores what really happened to Adolf Hitler in the second of his What Really Happened series, What Really Happened, The Death of Hitler. Well, according to official accounts and numerous eyewitnesses, the dictator of the Third Reich shot himself, Loyal Nazis burned his body and the bones were removed by the Russians. Yet after World War II, some 50 percent of Americans polled didn't believe the captured Nazis who said that Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun had committed suicide in their Berlin bunker were telling the truth. They thought the Fuhrer had faked his death and escaped justice. Joseph Stalin himself told Allied leaders that Soviet forces never discovered his body and that he believed the Nazi leader had gotten away. There were numerous reports of top Nazi officials successfully fleeing to South America. Did Adolf Hitler do the same? Well, Robert Hutchinson is an award-winning writer, speaker, and author of numerous books of popular history, including What Really Happened, The Lincoln Assassination, When in Rome, and The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Bible. The general editor of the What Really Happened series, he gives talks on historical topics to groups throughout the country and Europe. He blogs at roberthutchinson.com, but today we're talking about his latest book, What Really Happened, The Death of Hitler. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on again. 
This is a great book to read this summer um, because you cover so much territory and so much of what we have known, uh, what we think or thought we knew, and what we now <laughs> assume about uh, what happened to Adolf Hitler. Now, why why was there such mystery around what actually happened uh, to the man who instigated World War II? Well, this is a story that's had a lot of legs. In other words, um, there's been a lot of things that have buttressed uh, those people who say that Hitler likely got away uh, over the decades. Just when things seem to quiet down, something seems to happen that, that gives new life to the story that Hitler uh, might have escaped. I mean, it wasn't until um, as late as 2014 that Barack Obama um, authorized the release of formerly top-secret FBI and CIA files that revealed that the FBI itself was investigating whether Hitler escaped well into the 1950s. So that gave kind of new life to the story. And then in 2009, the Russians finally allowed a U.S. pathology team to examine uh, a skull fragment that they said was Hitler's that had a bullet hole in it. And the U.S. experts said, based on DNA analysis and other tests, it could not have been Hitler's. It was a skull of a woman under the age of 40. So that set headlines all over the world. Maybe Hitler didn't die in the bunker after all. Maybe maybe his, the history books got it wrong and so on. And then in 2015, the History Channel did a three-year reality TV show dedicated to exploring this topic and, and taking it very, very seriously. So this has just been a story that kind of cries out to, to really settle it once and for all and determine what really happened. Has it been settled once and for all? I'm not going to ask you to give a definitive uh, yes, I know. Or, <laughs> but has it been uh, resolved at this point? Yes. Uh, two years ago, it was resolved. In 2018, uh, for the first time ever, scientific uh, definitive tests were, were performed that let us know for certain what actually happened to Adolf Hitler in the years after World War. Up to that point, there really had only, there had been no body discovered. Um, as far as the West was concerned, at least. Um, and there were lots of holes in the official account that conspiracy theorists and authors and so on were able to point to, to at least give doubt to the official account. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were two submarines, Nazi submarines that visited the coast of Argentina in July 1945. We have pictures of them. We know all about them. There were planes that took off right at the last minute. Going down, I've been, I was in Berlin researching this, and you, the, the big boulevard in the middle of the Tiergarten Park in central Berlin was used as a runway, and famous Nazi test pilots were able to escape at the last minute. And we know that Hans Bauer, uh, Hitler's private pilot, had a jet, or not a jet, had a, had a long-range aircraft standing by to whisk him away, and all of his associates were begging him to please escape. So all, we know all this stuff, and that has given credence to this story over the years, and that's what makes it so fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Well, let's go back and talk about the original story about Hitler's death. What was the story that was given at the time that most people didn't believe at the time, but was uh, the official um, story about how Hitler died, if in fact Hitler died? Well, what, what most people don't realize is that the Western allies, the U.S. Army and so on, didn't come into Berlin for two months after the end of the war. The Russians were allowed to, to conquer Berlin. It was agreed at the Yalta Conference that they were to get that quote-unquote honor, and that's what they did. So there was no body. And 
So, and there were all these, um, the Russians were saying different things to different people. And so the West, um, the Western allies basically appointed a Oxford historian named Hugh Trevor Roper to do a definitive report. And he was able to interview some of the witnesses, but not all of them. Uh, and he, based on what they said, he wrote the official report, the story we all know from the 2004 German story, uh, German film Downfall, that Adolf Hitler married his longtime mistress, Eva Braun, in a brief civil ceremony, and then they retired to their inner room, and Hitler shot himself, and Eva Braun likely swallowed a um, cyanide capsule. And then, as you said, their aides took their bodies up to the garden of the Fuhrer bunker and put them in a trench, poured dozens of gallons of gasoline on them, lit them on fire, and that was the last anyone knew of what happened to their bodies, according to Hugh Trevor Roper and the official accounts. And that remained the case for about 30 years. Nobody knew what happened. It wasn't until uh, the late 60s and early 70s that the Russians finally admitted that, yeah, they, they, they actually did probably find Hitler's remains after all. So, um, mm -hmm. But they never provided any proof one way or the other. And that's why this story has continued is because the Russians were very tight-lipped about it. But what really happened? But we now know what actually happened was they recovered the remains of Hitler and Eva Braun and the Goebbels family. They performed a, a cursory autopsy, not very thorough, and they buried them in a secret location where they stayed for 25 years uh, in Madeburg, Germany. Have those remains ever been recovered? <laughs> well, no. What happened was in, 19, <laughs> in 1970, see, it's a very murky story. The, the chain yes. of events are... Uh, in 1970, the, the, the Soviets agreed to give back Germany to the East Germans. They were mm -hmm. basically an occupying army up to that point. And they were afraid that, that their secret would come out and that enterprising Germans would find the secret burial place of Hitler. And it would become a, a Nazi shrine, the way Lenin's tomb is a shrine for the communists. So they ordered uh, uh, Andropov, who was then the head of security, later became a Russian premier, ordered mm -hmm. that the bodies be dug up, disinterred from their secret location, re-incinerated again, and the dust be scattered in uh, a river uh, in East Germany, which is what happened. And we, the people that did that have spoken on the record about how they did that. There were two, two officers did it. And, but they kept two things. They kept the skull fragment I told you about earlier that they thought was Hitler's, and they kept his jawbone with his teeth in it. And it was Hitler's teeth that allowed for finally a positive identification that it was Adolf Hitler. If his teeth were in Moscow, then it was impossible that he escaped to Argentina. And in 2018, for the very first time ever, the Russians allowed a French forensic team to examine Hitler's teeth. And this team said, with absolute certainty, they were Hitler's team <laughs> because wow. of many factors. But the one, one reason they could positively identify him, they did have dental records that were, however, drawn from memory from Hitler's dentist because his actual dental records disappeared in a plane crash in 1945, another mysterious coincidence. But they also had in the possession of the U.S. intelligence, x-rays of Hitler's skull that were taken after the July 1944 assassination attempt, and those x-rays matched exactly the jawbone. So that allowed them to make a positive identification. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Robert Hutchinson, who is... Uh 
entered his second edition in the um, uh, What Really Happened series, The Death of Hitler. This is the second in that series. Uh, a great read if you'd like to have some understanding of what we know, what we thought we knew, and what we've now confirmed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Robert Hutchinson, his latest book, What Really Happened? The Death of Hitler. Uh, this has been a mystery unresolved uh, for many, many years, as we all know. Uh, and this is a, a look at uh, the evidence and uh, what's happened over the decades following the declaration that he and Eva Braun uh, committed suicide with definitive answers. Now, we know that um, Hitler had uh, had used body doubles. Um, could he have used one in the bunker while he and Eva Braun escaped? Could the X-ray that you made reference to have been someone other than himself? <laughs> of course. Yes, they could, they could have used that. Uh, they, they, I mean, I mean, seriously, that, that's actually all of these things. Uh, you're talking about possibility, probability, plausibility, and all of these things are inherently possible and in some cases even plausible. And yes, Hitler did have occasionally used body doubles. The Russians, after they came, right after they arrived at the bunker on May 3rd, they found a body that kind of had a little Hitler mustache and they thought with a bullet hole right between his eyes. And they thought well, that it might have been Hitler's body double, but they were able to rule it out. There were some Russians who had actually met Hitler and said, no, that, that's definitely not him. But yes, they could have done that. The conspiracy theorists say that's exactly what happened, that the uh, top Hitler aides swapped out uh, a body double of Hitler and an, and an actress who worked for Goebbels um, as, as Eva Braun. The real Hitler and Eva Braun escaped in a plane, and the fake Hitler and Eva Braun retired to Hitler's inner room where they thought they were just going to have a nice lunch and were shot dead by a Gestapo officer, and then those bodies were burned. And those were the bodies that the eyewitnesses saw. So that's the story that the conspiracy theorists say. Mm. Unfortunately, their evidence for that is practically non-existent. They, they have one, uh, one uh, facial identification expert that they rely upon who says that photographs of Hitler could not have been Hitler at a certain point in the final week of his life and so on. But those photos are so murky anyway that it's a pretty big stretch to accept that. And that's their only evidence. And the fact is, if you actually read some of these books, like Grey Wolf and others that say that Hitler escaped, they really have no evidence at all. Mm -hmm. Most of their books are talk about these plausibilities. Were there pilots who could have flown Hitler out of there? Yes. Were there submarines? Yes. Was there secret Nazi gold that could have supported Hitler in his, in his getaway? Yes. They don't actually get around, though, to showing you ev any evidence really, that he actually did it. Most of the books are just discussing these kind of other circumstances that make it possible, but that's not the same thing as being true. Yeah, yeah. And so... What anyway. are some of the other major <laughs> myths surrounding his death? Um, well, you know, the, the big myths for me are, are less about his... Well, some of the things that have amazed me studying this is how um, the, the role the media played in keeping us alive uh, one of the reasons people believe this is there were literally thousands of articles that had sightings of Hitler in the tabloid press and so on. And that kept this story uh, alive for a long time, that Hitler was able to 
escape and live in Argentina. There were photographs, you know, people, you know, there were cover stories in magazines uh, that had Hitler on them that said, did Hitler, did Hitler live in Buenos Aires and so on? Um, what I really learned from this research was less about Hitler's death than about his life, about how mm. he was able to take total control of a nation so quickly. And um, that's what kind of surprised me that I learned I hadn't really realized. I mean, I knew that Hitler was democratically elected and that he played by the rules in that sense. But I didn't really understand how he set set the groundwork for that and how um, the government institutions in Germany relinquished their responsibility and basically handed power over to him uh, legally. It was all done legally. Everything the Nazis did at first was done, quote unquote, legally. Uh, through the passing of laws and so on, due to an emergency, they thought that they were under attack. The their 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 uh, the Reichstag, which is their parliament building, the equivalent to our Congress, was burned uh, in a in a big fire, and a uh, communist guy was arrested, and so there was a lot of fear that there, um, a communist coup might be in the offing and so on. And again, it was plausible. They had seen what had happened in Russia the German people, and they knew that the Russians had shot tens of thousands of people uh, to affect their revolution, and they didn't want that. And so the German institutions and government and parliament and so on relinquished power and gave up their civil liberties in a quote-unquote temporary way, and Hitler used that to seize complete total control. And that surprised me. I mean, I knew it mm -hmm. a little bit, but I didn't know the de the details of it. And that was what I was really shocked by. Yeah. Well, this story certainly has captured the imagination of uh, the world over because the thought of Adolf Hitler uh, escaping justice is just more than I think most people could could have taken at that time and even um, uh, up to the present. What happened to the last minute plans to fly Hitler and Eva Braun out of Berlin? Why wouldn't they have, and this is speculative, I suppose, why wouldn't they have availed themselves of that option rather than uh, to end their lives as we now know they did? Um, uh, Hitler didn't want to go. Um, I mean, it, it, he was quite clear uh, I mean, as far as we can know with certitude in history, uh -huh. in his last will and testament, he announced that he was planned on ending his life uh, in, in the two documents, his political testament and his personal will. He stated that that was his intention. He told all of his aides that that, that was his intention. We have the, the memoirs of all of his the survivors of the Fuhrer bunker who said he said that repeatedly. They have we have their accounts of. Uh, like Magda Goebbels, the wife of Joseph Goebbels, literally begging Hitler on his knees to escape because she felt that was the only way she and her children could live is if he lived. Otherwise, she knew that her husband intended on them all committing suicide if Hitler died. So she was literally begging him right at the last minute, actually, if you've seen that 2004 film Downfall. Yes. Right at the last minute, as they're closing the door, she comes in and begs Hitler to escape, and he adamantly refused because he thought he'd be caught anyway, and that he would stand trial and be humiliated the way Mussolini was humiliated. Humiliated, and he had no intention of doing that. So uh, that's why I, I think it's certain that that's what actually, that he actually did kill himself.
even though everybody wanted to escape. So that is that part of the conspiracy theory books is true. They did want him to escape. But he himself had other plans. He himself had other plans. Yeah. And Why do you I think say in my book? Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, well I say, in my, you know, there were 40 attempts to kill Adolf Hitler, 40 documented attempts. And they, some of them came really close um, to blowing them to bits, as we know from Operation Valkyrie and so on. Mm-hmm. But his erratic schedule always foiled them. And in the end, what, what all of his generals and all these conspiracies failed to do, in a sense, Hitler did himself, which is kill himself. And the moment he did, the, the war stopped. The killing stopped. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, he, uh, the moment he died was when World War II ended, at least in Europe. And, um, uh, you, you know, it's just... The, the the last, say, six months, nine months of the war is when much of the death toll actually occurred. So it's kind of a tragedy that if Hitler yes. had done this earlier, he might have spared millions of people from dying. Mm-hmm. Why do you think this story still resonates? Obviously, uh, Adolf Hitler was such a tyrant. He was responsible for so much killing in the prosecution of the war as well as in its uh, his uh, solution to eliminate the the world of uh, the Jewish community. Why do you think people still um, uh, have so much interest in this story and certainly of resolving what happened to Adolf Hitler at the end of the war? Well, because he, you know, he continues to fascinate the world because this ordinary man, and he was a very ordinary man in many ways, how this ordinary man who never achieved more than the rank of corporal in the army, he was basically a a high school dropout who uh, who basically starved on the streets of Vienna as he sold his watercolor postcards. And, you know, he failed at pretty much everything he ever did, yet he was able to take control of one of the most sophisticated countries on earth in a very short period of time and then conquer uh, all of Europe uh, in a very, you know, within 10, in 10 years. Uh, so that fascinates people. And so, how he was able to do it fascinates people. What kind of a person he was that could do that? And, and then, you know, how he, tried, how, how he died and, and did he escape? It just kind of naturally lends itself to um, yeah. tabloid material. And it's just, you know, Hitler books always sell well for some strange reason. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's also a cautionary tale what to avoid uh, in the future, to try to learn from history to uh, prevent uh, this from happening again. Yes, I've said this over and over on my book tour, is that if I learned anything from this research and going to Germany and, and studying this period, some European recently said that Americans treat democracy like a football they can kick around, and it should be treated like a Fabergé egg, their most mm. precious possession. Uh, it should be treated delicately and, and, and not easily uh, bruised or whatever. And that's what that's what the lesson of Hitler actually is, is that uh, democracy is a very fragile thing and it, you can lose it in a heartbeat. At least in Germany, as I said, he, he used the democratic process to uh, eliminate democracy. And so we should all be on guard Absolutely. Uh, for that. You don't give up your civil rights, the civil liberties easily. Without the forensic um, capacity that we have today, could the could there be a definitive answer as to whether or not Adolf Hitler ended his life uh, at the end of World War II? 
Uh, well, you know, it depends on what degree of certitude you want. They had photographs of his teeth that were released earlier, um, and uh, old-fashioned dentists going on the dental records were able to make it a, a, a um, decision on that, that it was Hitler's teeth. Uh, what, what was different in 2018 was they were actually able to do physical uh, – they were actually physically examined with an electron microscope the actual teeth themselves. Um, before that, the Russians had only released photographs. So you had photographs, and then you had um, remembered uh, dental records from Hitler's dentist and the dental technician who made his bridge work. And so, you know, that's what they used to say that, that yeah. those were probably Hitler's teeth. But, you know, what degree of certitude is that? So it just depends on – history is not like math. That's right. You don't right. have absolute certitude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you yeah. only have degrees of probability. Now, I have to ask you um, if you're willing to divulge the information. What's next in the What Really Happened series? We have a whole bunch of titles uh, that we've been batting around. We're, we've got to narrow down to a couple. Uh, we want to handle the, the problem is I want to be able to solve things. So, for example, Amelia Earhart, whatever happened, what really happened to Amelia Earhart? things like that, I want to be able to give a definitive answer, at least mm -hmm. within a reasonable degree of certitude. Same thing with JFK, things like that. Uh, so the topics that we're choosing have to be mysteries that have a lot of controversy surrounding them, but also ones that now after the passage of time, we think we have actually solved it. Uh, and so that eliminates a lot of things. Mm -hmm. It also leads for a lot of things, but it also eliminates things. Like, I wouldn't want to take on JFK at this point. Uh, Amelia, <laughs> no. Earhart, I, I, Amelia Earhart, I'm closer to. Well, well we, we will certainly uh, wait with great interest for the next in the series. Robert Hutchinson, thank you so much for joining us once again. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on again. Thank you. Again, the book is uh, What Really Happened, The Death of Hitler. It's published by Regnery History, a great read, especially during the summertime, or if you find, like most of us, you have a little extra time for reading. Uh, covers not just what happened at the end of his life, but as uh, Mr. Hutchinson pointed out, uh, some of the events that led to his prominence and, and as a leader and so on. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Let me ask you a question. Is dying with COVID-19 and dying from COVID-19 the same thing? Well, the answer to the question is, according to a KGW investigation, yes, they're the same. Now, in my mind, when you say someone died with COVID or from COVID-19, the assumption is that's what ended their life. But in Oregon, they don't make that distinction. And as I mentioned, KGW did an investigation and they point out one particular case of Fred Creasy. He was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer at the end of June. Doctors gave the 81-year-old 30 days to live. He died at the end of July while in hospice care in a rehabilitation facility. Now, says his son, uh, uh, they were told that um, they needed to go see him because his life was going to end on that day. Well, he did die on that day. He had tested positive for COVID-19 around the same time of his cancer diagnosis. He had no symptoms of COVID-19. He wasn't even quarantined. Um, but the, uh, the man died from advanced cancer, uh, and he was considered recovered from coronavirus. A few days after his death, Lincoln County Public Health reported him as the, count the uh, county's ninth COVID-19 death. 
He didn't die from COVID-19. He was recovered from COVID-19. It wasn't complication in his death. It didn't relate to his death at all. Now, the um, son says, I mean, that's not what he died from. He died from colon cancer, not COVID. And places are listing loved ones as COVID deaths. And they're labeling that. And it's just not true. McCary, the son, and said, Creasy, the father died with COVID-19, not from COVID-19. And there's obviously a difference. Well, in Oregon, there isn't when it comes to numbers. Other families across Oregon are also questioning why their loved ones are being counted as COVID-19 deaths, including the family of a 26-year-old Oregon man who was listed as a COVID-19 death but tested negative for the virus. So how reliable are the numbers we're getting? According to the Oregon Health Authority, there is no difference between, uh, or I should say, when it comes to tracking and reporting COVID deaths. OHA spokesperson um, Jonathan Mahdi, and again, this is a KGW investigation, explained in an email how the state determines what's counted as COVID-19 death. We consider COVID-19 deaths to be death in which a patient hospitalized for any reason within 14 days of a positive COVID-19 test result dies in the hospital or within the 60 days following the discharge. So the simple diagnosis. Now, in the case of the 26-year-old, he didn't have COVID-19. And it goes on. Death in which COVID-19 is listed as a primary or contributing cause of the death on a death certificate. We count COVID-19 deaths this way because the virus can often have effects on an individual's health that may complicate their recovery from other diseases and conditions, even injuries or indirectly contribute to their death. Another reason is because OHA is using this data to track the spread of the disease and to create actionable steps for stopping the spread. So what does that policy mean in practice? Well, uh, when asked about a hypothetical case where someone died from a motorcycle crash and also had COVID-19, would that be counted as a COVID-19 death? The answer, yes. But I must go back to the point about how we use this data, which is to help us track how COVID-19 is spread in the community. He added that the state follows the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines for reporting deaths. Epidemiologists like Dr. Carlos Crespos of PSU OHSU School of Medicine said, with the exception of a crash or gunshot wound, this is not a misleading way to report data because COVID-19 does exacerbate other health problems. And in this case, if you have the diagnosis, whether or not it did exacerbate uh, the, uh, the cause of death is of little consequence. It's, it's fascinating to read, and you can find this on KGW's website, but again, if you die with COVID-19 or die from COVID-19, they are considered the same thing when uh, reporting the numbers, which at least it, to my mind raises questions about what are the numbers that we're getting actually mean? Are these people who have actually died from COVID-19? And was the COVID-19 diagnosis that we're led to believe, uh, are they reliable? In the case of the 26-year-old, he tested uh, that he did not have the disease and yet was reported as a COVID-19 death. Again, KGW did an investigation that raises questions over how the state of Oregon tracks COVID-19 deaths. We'll return to this at some future point, but I'm out of time today. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow. James Blend is our producer, Clark Hilton engineer, Dan Rice. I'd like to thank him for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.